Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody, we'll be getting started in just a moment here, but uh, as we get through some of the technical difficulties to make sure everything's actually still going good in the new studio. We'll be getting to your questions in just a moment, so go ahead and start putting those in the chat window for our moderators to uh, go ahead and let us know what's going on and what your questions are, and she'll be getting, they'll be getting right off today by my wife Sarah, who is joining us today. Sarah, say hello. Hi. <laughs> Hopefully with a microphone that's actually working this time. So we're just waiting for a moment to get some confirmation as to what kind of questions we got coming in and whether or not the audio is working. If you aren't too familiar with what's going on for the schedule this upcoming month, you'll be able to see that in the upper window as we go. And uh, those will be the upcoming episodes we have going on for this upcoming month. If you have missed any of our recent ones, go ahead and um, uh, look through the video archives to see which ones you feel like seeing. I believe last week's episode was Impact of Graphene, and so the upcoming week's episode is going to be continent sized rotating habitats. And if I have a chance to look at some of the things bigger than like O'Neill cylinders, such as the McKendry cylinder, the Bishop Ring, the Topopolis, and so on. And uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and get to your questions. Has Cindy uh, confirmed, by the way, Will? I believe that we are <laughs> streaming. I do see a, th- a thumbs up. Okay. We're just waiting on questions for a moment as we get through the technical stuff going on here. Um, and we are live. Let me see if I can pop up what up that window. Uh, no so, video on YouTube yet. Okay, no video on YouTube yet? Okay, and I can see the stream, so. Uh, we've got a new studio set up that lets us talk back and forth. Everybody was actually involved in the moderation these days, but it's still kind of getting set up as we go. Um, and so I will just randomly talk for a couple of minutes. So we'll be looking at what we can actually do to build those space habitats we just mentioned with graphene. Uh, like the McKendry Sword or the Bishop Ring and some of the bigger ones like the Bank Sword or two. It's not just going to be graphene limited. But uh, we'll also be asking this month where we're going to come up with all the raw materials for that. And of course the usual idea is that you disassemble the solar system. And we'll be looking at that this, uh, this month too and dismantling the solar system. So... Um, as we continue to go through the technical glitches. Uh, it does seem like, I'm thinking, every time we get new audiovisual technology, there's always this big long delay in trying to make it work smoothly, and as soon as it does start to work smoothly, of course, we get a new, better system that uh, works even less smoothly. Okay, so I think we have a first question. Yes, the first question today is from Simon Farmer. How do you balance risk and life extension techniques? I guess if you mean that in the sense of experimentation, like when is it acceptable to actually use a life extension technology, like how long do you wait, there was this old pilot for a TV show, Island City or something similar, where they'd unleash the zombie apocalypse by giving everybody the life extension technology before it had been properly proved. 
And of course, given that to really properly prove something like life extension technology, you might have to wait, you know, centuries to find out, there could be some issues with that. On the flip side, the risk issue, though, there's a question is how do you start balancing risk in your own life when you have a much, much longer life? Uh, for instance, you know, I'm going to live to be, say, a thousand years old. If I have a 1% chance of dying every year from a car accident, then after, I think it's 73 years or 70, 71 years, you'd get the point where you had a 50-50 chance of dying, that cumulative odds and risks. Uh, that suddenly seems like a much bigger risk, right? If something's got a one a million chance of killing you every year, then after 710,000 years, you'd presumably be 50-50 chance of dying and normally you would not care. You know, that's that's the odds of dying in a normal lifetime that would be, you know, a percent of a percent. But if you're living to be 10,000 years, that's only a much bigger risk. If you're living to be 10 million years, that's only a certainty that that's what's going to kill you. So I think if you've got a much longer lifespan, you say we never talk about immortality. If there's a finite chance you die, you will eventually die. And, of course, the energy keeping you running would eventually run out, too. So one way or another, there's still a clock. We never do what immortality, just life extension. And I think in some ways we already see that in our own society. We live a lot longer than we used to. And, uh, you know, we take less risks in many ways, too, so that people don't tend to die from uh, any other natural causes in old age nearly as much as they used to. Whereas dying of old age, even a century or two, was still not the normal. Uh, the next question is from Albert Jackinson. This is a slightly technical or specific question, but how many pages are your scripts on average? Um, you know, I don't usually double line them. So the, the average script count, uh, word count is usually about when I get to 4,000 words is when I usually start thinking I need to wrap this script up if I haven't already got to that point. And you can add in probably another three to 400 for the uh, sponsor and announcements that we usually do at the end of episodes. But uh, that can be, I would say that's usually about eight pages uh, on Google Docs, but We've done ones as long as 12 before uh, for a given episode. And of course, the uh, Fully Paradox Compendium runtime 74 minutes, that is considerably longer, but that's about the word count, 4,000 4, words to 6,000 would be like a 40-minute video. Going back to the topic of life extension, Cam K asks, how long would you choose to live if we developed life extension technology? Hmm. Um... You know, there's always a question, what do you mean by choose to live? If life starts getting boring, I tend to be very against suicide. So I think that's why I always say, if you don't like your life, then you can either jump off a bridge or if you're not really opponent to that, you start taking increasingly risky behaviors. All those risk aversion things you've not been doing in recent centuries to live longer, like uh, what's our example, you start taking up hunting lions with a north bat and just see how that works out for you or skydiving off an orbital ring into a tank full of sharks. But uh, one way or another, you keep up whiskey enough habits, you eventually get uh, taken out. But uh, I don't know how long would I want to go until I, I would get there. I'd assume at some point I get bored. And if I, it was like after 10 years of boredom, I couldn't find some way to myself less, uh, less bored. I'd just keep taking riskier and crazier hobbies up until I either wasn't bored anymore or wasn't bored anymore for a more terminal reason. <laughs> so. Corey Austin says, do you consider yourself a philosopher? Um, you know, I was just thinking that all the doctorates they give out to people in science are PhDs, doctorates of philosophy. Um, and physics, in fact, if you look at other languages, the field of physics is often called natural philosophy. In the olden days, it was natural philosophy. So I suppose in that sense, yes. And we all have certain philosophical tendencies. But, uh, you know, my philosophy shelf on my library over here, I think, is uh, not even quite a full shelf. So, <laughs> No. <laughs> 
I probably have more books on philosophy than you do. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Heroic Victory says, do you have a favorite Thunderbird's craft and do you have any pointers for how we could set about building one? Um, you know, I'm remembering the Thunderbirds, assuming I can think of the same thing as you are, as the old Claymation TV series that I did not watch. So I don't have a specific favorite craft. That's what you're referring to from it. Zevonix says, how would multiple empires of different species coexist? You know, we did do uh, that coexistence with alien series up on Nebula, um, which I'll, I'll eventually import over to the main channel, but it's kind of exclusive there for probably a year. But uh, we did try to look at uh, things like trade and warfare and alliances. Um, there's the question of how alien is alien. You know, we have this tendency from our own past of exploration and from, you know, sci-fi that tends to be a bit of the Wild West in modern times or sci-fi times of assuming that you can just go up to an alien and eventually you can find some way to peacefully coexist and chat with each other. Um, this is probably not true in the sense of, you know, to hang out with each other in the same room. Um, you know, we have a really complex psychology that we base off of all sorts of traditions, customs, and cultures, and a shared biology. If you start dealing with, a, say, a species that has a thousand young every time it gives birth, um, they are probably going to have a very different attitude on things like infanticide than we do. Uh, those may not really be, those may be things you can avoid going to war with each other, mostly because you stay away from each other and don't think about it. Um, certain cultures and customs that we might encounter with aliens might be so alien that we just can't tolerate each other except by staying away. And, you know, you just might get to a point where you kind of self-quarantine, you don't have shared borders, you don't do diplomats between each other, you send each other toss messages back and forth of, we hope you're doing well. Uh, we don't want to talk to you though that much, <laughs> and, and we know you don't want to talk to us. So that might be the future. I hope not, but it could easily be the case. Stephen Zink says, "How tall are you, if I may ask?" Same height as my wife, five nine. So uh, I do not know off the top of my head what that is in centimeters, um, but five nine and how many centimeters that happens to be. So, Jordan, is humanoid form the best physical form life can get to evolve to our level of intelligence and technological advancement? Um, I mean, presumably. Since we have things with us that go wrong, there is a potentially better form we could have or a modification what we have. But, uh, you know, if you're looking from that standpoint, uh, we are here. We've got all the necessary equipment for it. So, presumably, it was the best one evolution was likely to pop up. But it could have potentially do a different way of doing it. Um, as for what the best form is, that's, you know, you can't really look at evolution from that kind of perspective. Uh, it's the one that is, is the one you have that developed to this. Certain forms were not conceivably be able to do that, but you'd have to have a way of interacting with the world, something along the lines of hands. You'd need to be able to have that high-density data transmission by something like your eyeballs that you really see what's going on or, you know, hear what's going on via really good sonar. And then you have to have all that brain capacity for you to sort that. And there has to be a survival advantage at every level, you know, step of that. So is there a better form we could potentially have? Uh, you know, I don't know if that's really the best way to be looking at that sort of question, but uh, certainly the one we have is the most advantageous for intelligence currently on the planet. So, Ivan Petrovic, what are your thoughts on plausibility of nanotechnology as usually portrayed in science fiction? Aren't bacteria already operating on the lowest possible size for a functioning creature? Probably not quite the lowest size. We did look at that a bit in the Santa Claus machine and uh, self-replicating machines. Um, 
you could probably go smaller, like viruses are a very good example of a very simplistic, simple machine. But that's working inside a specific biological context. We could make things a little bit sturdier if we were using certain metal compounds or, say, graphene maybe. And then it just depends on how complex the machine had to be. We should be able to engineer something that worked at least one order of magnitude beneath what we think was the, the microscopic bacteria and viruses. Um, going much below that, that does start getting questionable. Uh, you start having all sorts of issues like the sticky fingers problem of actually being able to touch things. Um, <clears throat> And just the general complexity. But you have to keep in mind, when you think of like a human cell, uh, it depends on what kind of cell it is. Most of them are blood cells, which are quite small. But when you think of a human cell, um, you think of a very tiny thing. If you think of that in terms of atoms, picture an atom as a building block or a concrete cinder block. You might say, okay, well, the, the, the cell is the building that's made out of those atoms. No, the cell is the city of which various buildings are made out of those bricks from. Atoms are much, much tinier than cells. Cells are huge. They are, the smallest that might qualify as a mega factory built out of little blocks of, of atoms, brick size. The bigger ones would qualify as a metropolis. They are huge. Can we make something small in that for using those blocks? Probably yes. But whether or not we can make something self-replicating and sustainable, that's much smaller than that. My guess would be we'd find big problems trying to go much more than an order of magnitude smaller. Thank you for that uh, analogy. The next question is from Cosmo Explorer 101. How would a galaxy spinning city work? A galaxy I'm sorry, spanning? Galaxy spanning city work. How would a galaxy spanning city work? Um, slowly. Um, <laughs> the, well, now you could crush that galaxy down to a much smaller thing, right? Uh, galaxies are not really all that dense. Uh, I think we looked at, and this is what we get from like the Birch planet, which is galaxy mass, uh, well, can be as much as galaxy mass, um, or I think we call it a globular red swarm things when Steve Bowers and I came up with the idea of just how many stars you could micro-size and, and crunch into an area to make a dice of stars. Um, but uh, you're looking at something generally in the light year to uh, tens of light years radius that you could compact the entire galaxy into. Um, and of course, you could go smaller than that if you wanted to tune your power down, your temperature down. But uh, of course, you can't only tune your power down and your temperature down so much before they start to conflict with each other in density, as we see with Dyson swarms. You can only compact them so much for your heat issues. So you could have a city, theoretically, on a Birch planet that was several thousand levels high in a sphere itself that was half a light year across uh, or smaller obviously for galaxy mass I think it's more like uh, 0.1 light year across so at that point in time communication from one side of the city to another by electric transmission would take a few months um, I guess that is conceivable that you could actually have one Eucumenopolis Birch Planet Galaxy City uh, that could actually communicate with itself over the course of months as all nations often did. So that is my best guess for how without FTL you could actually have a galaxy spanning city that was, you know, even the concept of a galaxy spanning city. <laughs> the, then we have a question from Matt Parker. If you had billions of dollars, how would you decide to colonize the solar system? By investing in a method that would give me trillions of dollars. Um, <laughs> I guess the easiest way to go about something like that is to find what is the industry that's actually going to kickstart. You know, you can throw money at the problem. You can say, we're going to give everybody a billion dollars who moves to malls or something like that. But if you really want to get going, you have to give, there has to be a profitable reason to be out there, whether it's new land to set up life on or whether it's a new industry to, to make money off of and presumably some combination of the two. And 
the usual one I, I aim for as the best Kickstarter of why people want to get out there other than just for the sake of getting out there uh, would be asteroid mining. But that's mostly a, a get some gold and bring it home, but beyond that, it's making resources to build up more. The other one that's really good for that is power satellites. Uh, as we looked at in the power satellites episode, the energy industry is a multi-trillion dollar annual industry. Um, if you could do it 1% cheap up in space or 1% better up in space and that's it, right there you got a Kickstarter because now you have a multi-trillion dollar industry in space and everything else is going to pop up right around it. You know, there'll be space hotels for the people who have to go up there and spend time there. There'll be people wanting to film movies up in space and can do so now because there's lots of empty space to can rent on the cheap for a little bit. Then you've got all the people making parts for those things up in space because they can do it just a little bit cheaper than they could on the ground. And then, of course, you've got people saying, hey, why don't we pee back the internet off of those too? And they put up much cheaper, well-powered Wi-Fi over the whole planet, maybe. And then it's going to be much cheaper to get the resources from these off the moon or from these asteroids. Let's go ahead and mine them and let's set up permanent bases on them and so on. So I tend to feel a combination of asteroid mining and uh, power satellites is the most promising way to really kickstart space. And I think you probably could actually maybe launch a venture into trying that with, a, with I don't know if I'd say a few billion bucks, but uh, probably for under 100 billion, you could do some serious, genuine prototyping of both of those. And not just a little bit in the lab, but some actual genuine projects and see how that goes. Dan from Discord says, what do you think about mag matter, both as the construction material and its role in power generation and propulsion? I don't really think of MagMatter as a power generational propulsion system, but I suppose it does. For those of you who aren't familiar, MagMatter is a hypothetical type of material that basically uses magnetic monopoles, assuming they exist. Um, and the idea there is that instead of having atoms that are connected by their electron shells, what you actually have instead is essentially quark bonds, that strong nuclear force. And of course, that is so much stronger, uh, especially at those kind of ranges. So you get this hyperdense material that's on par with neutronium. Uh, you pure neutron matter comes together that you find in the centers of uh, neutron stars. And um, that hypothetically could be material strong enough to build things like a Niven ring board or a Banks orbital out of. And uh, I'm not too familiar with discussion we're using for a power generation source, but uh, to be fair, it would make quite a condensed fuel if it was something you had to keep stable since the amount of energy in those quark bonds would be huge uh, on those magnetic monopole bonds. But I'm afraid I'm just not familiar off the top of my head what it's used for power or generation or proportion would be. But I suspect it would probably have quite a few given that it's a super strong material. So you could probably actually run fusion right inside it like it was a piece of steel around a hot thing of steam as opposed to fusion level core masses of a star. Maddie VHS, have you thought about making a Twitch channel? Um, no. I, I'm barely familiar with what Twitch is, but I've been sent some notes on it. Mary Slow is one of those places where you tend to do videos that are really quite short. I could be wrong about that. I'm usually behind on these things. I like recently got around to putting the channel's audio on Spotify. But uh, if Twitch is what I remember it as, Lucy Bean, and it's for short videos, we just don't do short videos. It's not all his own. Jonathan, what is your favorite sci-fi setting? My favorite sci-fi setting? Oh my, that could be quite a toss-up. Um, I mean, just the background one, it depends on what you qualify as sci-fi. For instance, uh, Rogers Lasney's Chronicles of Ambo and McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Porn are both sci-fi settings, kind of, but they're really more fantasy ones. Um, 
Uh, definitely not Alistair Reynolds' Revelation Space. It's one of my favorite series, settings-wise, but it's not a place I'd want to live in. Same for something like Warhammer 40k. It's a beautiful setting in terms of the construction for it, but I wouldn't want to ever live in that place. Um, maybe Ian M. Banks' Culture Series would be a personal favorite setting to live in. Uh, if it's just a favorite one to actually read about, though, then I would say Revelation Space is probably my favorite as a setting. We have a very kind shout out from Baseboy Low G at Super Chat member. Your channel is very thought provoking. Keep it up. <laughs> Thank you. And another Super Chat member, Milson, says, "Which interpretation of quantum mechanics do you subscribe to?" Uh, I tend to go with the flow and just go Copenhagen, but I don't. Uh, I don't have one I'm officially locked into. Um, for those of you who've heard about this, you've heard the Copenhagen interpretation, and that's the Schrodinger's cat one, that the cat is simultaneously alive and dead until we look at it. That's Copenhagen, that these events are random and simultaneous until we resolve them. The other one you'll be familiar with is the Mini Worlds interpretation, and these are one or the other. It's not both. You're either Copenhagen, the cat is alive and dead, or you're Mini Worlds. In Mini Worlds, the cat's alive and the cat's dead. And you don't have to tell me anything by observing it other than letting yourself know which universe you're in. You know, there's one where the cat's dead and you open the box and it's alive and you say, oh, I'm the one with the cat's alive. There's another one where the cat's dead. Those are the two big ones. They're all dozens of others. I think we looked at some of them in the parallel realities and all the universe one. Um, I do not like mini worlds from a philosophical standpoint. It's everything that could possibly happen is happening. Um, but uh, that always strikes me as philosophically iffy. But uh, it is one of the, it's, I'd say it's the second most popular uh, amongst visitors right after Copenhagen, probably pretty close to a tie. And then after that, there's just so many other ones, which I think you can see that episode for discussion of it. But um, you've got no way of proving them. The one that is actually true at this time, we have no way of knowing or even testing. So you don't really want to lock in on one interpretation or another just because it's one you like a little bit better. Um, we have no way of knowing which one is true, but it is important to keep in mind it is a one or the other thing. Whichever interpretation of quantum theory is correct, the other ones are not. And they could all be wrong. In fact, I tend to suspect they are. (laughs) Simon Farmer, what do you think of a reality TV show being the first profitable space endeavor? I think we kicked that idea around with the Mars One trip, or I might be misremembering the name there. Um, I've got no problem with uh, filming what's going on on board the ship. It's a one-year journey to Mars with modern technology, basically. Um, that's a long time. And it might actually be the very good for the crew to be seen on TV regularly, but I think if they try to film anything like a reality TV show, they might kill each other. <laughs> um, and uh, that would not result in mission success. <laughs> might be good ratings. Um, there's definitely an advantage to having some commercial enterprise involved. You know, if you've got to slap Pepsi logos on the side of your spaceship, uh, that gives you extra money for it, great. But um, in terms of the first one being a reality TV show, I don't think so because it's, you know, it's cross-focus. To, the first project that gets done is usually the one whose highest priority is that specific project. If your project is to get to Mars, that's what you're going to do. If your project is to get to Mars a reality TV show, I tend to feel like you'd end up getting a little bit sidetracked onto that reality TV show aspect of things, your production, your pick, and all that thing. And, you know, we don't need to be picky all command crews for Houston or all crews for the ship based on who's got the best uh, best on-screen personality, per se. But it could happen. And I think it would be good for people to be much more actively involved in it. They want to Apollo and be able to see inside there. But... Again, especially on a spaceship, you're crammed with six or seven other people on for a year. We kind of want to maximize privacy. I don't think we want to have any less, you know, 
we already have some where you can watch the International Space Station live a lot of the time, and uh, that might work for something like Mars, but we don't want to get over the top, I think, and make a, a VR TV show out of it in the classic sense. We have just a couple more questions before the break. Mm-hmm. Luke Gleave uh, Ejerber asks, would SFIA consider writing up a tabletop role-play game based on all of your videos, some sort of space opera setting? You know, it's, it's probably a bit of a strange qu- uh, thing is I don't usually play science fiction RPGs. Uh, I tend to play fantasy ones. It's, it's, uh, I've played some sci-fi RPGs, but I usually do tend to prefer more your classic Dungeons & Dragons. Although the moment we're playing uh, the third edition of Exalted, which is a White Wolf game. I haven't played White Wolf in years. Um, and that's actually a fun setting. But uh, I wouldn't want to do one myself. I know somewhere around here I actually have a... I think it's called Afterboss. Uh, one of the uh, fans of the show had made that game and uh, sent me a copy of it. Um, but uh, there are some very good sci-fi RPGs out there. Traveler um, is probably the classic uh, space opera, Star Trek meets uh, space western space. So, And there's quite a few from... Uh, uh, for, for the Warhammer 40,000 setting, it has a bunch of RPGs too. And I'd say try those out. I don't even get a chance to play them, so I'm not even get a chance to write them. I don't get to play pen and paper nearly as much as I used to. <laughs> This might be a good one uh, to end before the break on. Mm-hmm. We have super chat from Eric Johansson. If I want to prevent having my behind kicked by some mean mother Hubbard way up in, out in, in outer space, what would be my best bet? Lasers, mass drivers, nuclear missiles, or something else altogether? Hmm. Uh, prayer. <laughs> uh, if an alien comes for you uh, right now as we are right now, uh, they've got you know stellar spaceships, I, I really would say your best odds are... And just pray, because uh, you're going to lose. Um, mass drivers, uh, lasers, these are all great things. It all comes down to sheer energy capacity. And the key thing about interstellar warfare is that if you can barely get off your own planet, but they can send ships to your planet, they don't have to stop them. Any ship that can cross the interstellar void in anything like a normal lifetime, uh, or even like even a thousand years between star systems, is moving so fast and carrying so much mass, if it's got a crew on board it, that all they have to do is not stop the ship and run into your planet and there is that much energy involved. So, uh, and that's assuming that all they've got in their arsenal is sheer brute force. They probably have all sorts of messed up weapons like brainwashing technology, nanotechnology. They drop one little vial of nanobots on your planet and it turns you into gray goo or soldiers they can use to shoot you or just turns your planet into paper clips without even bothering to uh, recognize you're there as a threat. So when it comes to current times and warfare against the alien, yeah, uh, you don't have too many options available to you to defend yourself. You're pretty screwed. You're basically like microbes in a petri dish uh, with a scientist observing you. There's very little you can do to prevent him from sterilizing the petri dish if he wants to. So, uh, so we're going to go ahead and go to break, and we will be back in a few minutes. We'll be taking a brief break, so now's a great time to grab a drink and a snack and get more questions in to the moderators. We've got some announcements though during the break. First, if you didn't already know, all of SFIA's episodes, including the live streams, are available as audio-only versions for free download from SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. As of right now, the live streams don't run live in those audio-only versions, but are posted about a day later. And for those of you listening to that, we tend to run thumbnails of the upcoming schedule for the next month in a corner of the screen during the live stream. 
First up, heading into July, we have an episode on continent-sized rotating space habitats, where we'll look at some of the truly enormous structures, some of which can only be built of supermaterials like graphene, and we'll look at the Bishopring, the McKendry Cylinder, the Banks Orbital, and the Super Long and Skinny Topopolis, along with others, in that episode on July 2nd. On July 9th we'll explore the concept of a brain in a jar, how it varies from mind uploading and simulated realities, and what life might be like as one, or if we ourselves might be, brains in a jar. Then on July 12th, two Sundays from now, we'll have the first installment of a new series, Becoming an Interstellar Species, where we'll look at the National Space Society's roadmap to the stars, and see what the first steps are to us becoming an interplanetary species. On Thursday, the 16th, we'll take a look at how we go about acquiring the vast amounts of raw materials we'll need to construct millions of those continent-sized habitats I mentioned a moment ago, and ask if we should dismantle the solar system itself to provide them. On July 23rd, we'll be back to the Fermi Paradox series to consider disappearing stars and cosmic voids, to consider if such things are natural, or might be signs of older alien civilizations dismantling their own solar systems or even entire galaxies. Then we'll close out the month of July with another livestream on Sunday the 26th before wrapping the month up on Thursday the 30th with Techno-Barbarians, civilizations living in the ruins of more advanced but fallen ones, with laser guns alongside medieval technology. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you're looking for a good place to discuss our topics with like-minded individuals, don't forget to check out our social media forums on Facebook, Reddit, and Discord, linked in the episode descriptions. You can also check out our forum on our website, IsaacArthur.net, where you can also find a catalog of our episodes, our sci-fi book recommendations, and ways to help support the channel such as Patreon, PayPal, Snail Mail, or a Super Chat during the livestream. If you missed any of this month's episodes, to quickly recap them, we had Summer on Jupiter where we looked at turning Jupiter into a second sun, the Fermi Paradox Firstborn where we examined what it might be like to be the first species to go out in the galaxy and if that might be us, After AI, where we looked at what a civilization might be like that had abandoned advanced computing, Space Police, where we examine the notion of law and law enforcement in the future, and the impact of graphene, which we'll continue discussing in terms of megastructures this upcoming Thursday. If you do have any questions on those recent topics, they do get priority in the livestream Q&As, but if we don't get to your question today, feel free to leave it as a comment below, I usually get to those within a day or so of the livestream. All that said, Let's get back to your questions and back to the show. Alright, and we're back. So what's our next question? <laughs> the the next question is a super chat from Dan O'Connell. Will we ever find planets ready made for life or will we always have to terraform them? That's a impossible question to answer right now. Uh, it is entirely possible that we could find all sorts of plants that actually did use oxygen and you know photosynthesis to set up there, in which case their base atmosphere and water setup might be in a really good position for us to nuke the planet and terraform it ourselves afterwards. <laughs> I don't know that that would really be the best option. You don't want to be moving down to a place that's full of um, alien bacteria, alien microbes, alien life forms, should they become, and this is assuming only non-intelligent ones, um, but you say you find a nice ripe alien planet and the oxygen levels, the carbon dioxide, everything is perfect. Temperature is perfect. It's, it's paradise utopia. 
you cannot colonize that planet with life forms or heal um, unless by some chance they just happen to be some kind of panspermia model where it just matches up genetically, everything's perfect, right? Which would raise all sorts of other interesting questions. Um, you find a world that's full of life, even if it looks a lot like your own, unless it looks a lot like your own under a microscope, it's you or them if you go down there. And so if you want, you probably best leave that planet alone. Uh, other than to put some science labs down on it. And uh, otherwise, though, it might be very easy to terraform it, but you'd probably have to kill everything on that planet first, and probably pretty thoroughly, which would make it a little bit harder to terraform afterwards, I suspect. Um, as for finding worlds that are real close, like Venus is a real close one. Um, we'd probably find ones that are better than Venus, but mass is right. Uh, it gets a little bit too much light, but that's easily fixable with a solar mirror. Uh, as you saw in winter on Venus, that's something we could probably do as a project if we want to in the next few centuries and really take a couple of centuries to get down to the point where we can start doing surface operations. Well, let's say we found a planet like Earth that had a lot of land, a lot of water, and it doesn't matter if it doesn't have oxygen. We really only care about the nitrogen level. Oxygen is easy to make. Oxygen is the third most abundant sort of thing in the universe, right? We can hydrolyze out of water. We can torture out of the rock. We have oxygen access. And at that point in time, you'd have to go through the cycle of terraforming out. But I wouldn't expect those planets to be super rare. I expect we find something much easier to colonize than Mars or Venus. Uh, probably in, in around at least one in 10 uh, stars that were reasonably like our own, the yellows and the, probably the oranges. Mm -hmm. But other than that, again, that's why we are going to be looking at the big uh, mega structures again this upcoming week, because those are usually going to turn out to be much better options to build, because you can build them to what you need when you need them and to your own taste. In a similar vein, the real Belioth asks, could there be a planet that is more suitable for human life than Earth itself? Um, a paradise planet. Uh, that's been suggested again before that there might be a planet that turns out to be better for life than, than ours. We are probably going to end up making some that are uh, habitats that are just turn out to be much better to our preferences than, uh, than the natural planet we're on. Because after all, we've got the Arctic that's not terribly hospitable to life. The Sahara is not terribly hospitable to us either, right? People live there, but it's not really the ideal. We should be able to make things that are better suited to us. And if that's the case, then we should theoretically be able to find a planet that we could terraform that would be better to that than Earth itself was. But you know, Earth is the planet that we're from. It's probably the one we're best suited to. But uh, that's a very, probably a very subjective answer too. But uh, I would say if you are going to have a planet, you're not going to stumble across it like that. Um, you end up making something like that. So, Super chat from Oflamio. How does an amateur contribute to science? I am particularly interested in information systems and software. You know, until this last century, the 20th century, there really weren't very many professional scientists and most of the work was done by amateurs. Uh, in throughout most of the 20th century, this was probably still the case that was starting to drift more towards it being a you know, life job. Certain areas of science is very hard to contribute to unless you're, you don't have to be working it professionally per se, but unless you've done that big, long investment of time and energy to the point that you would probably be thinking about getting a job in the field anyway. Um, but there are all sorts of fields where it's still the case. Uh, until some modern digital techniques had occurred uh, through the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, we had spotted very few supernovae. And the person who had spotted the most was a fellow from Australia who just seemed to have a knack for doing it. To this day, amateur astronomy is still probably the biggest amateur area of science. For something like computers, I don't know what percentage of software development is actually done by people who have degrees in computer science in one of those fields, but there's certainly a lot of it is done by people who do not. A lot of app development is not done by people who have, you know, the, uh, a doctorate, for instance, in computer science. Um, 
So I couldn't really talk to you about what the opportunities are in something like computer science or information systems, but that is a field for certain that it's still possible you can amateur and get a lot done. As for something like particle physics, a little bit of you. <laughs> Super chat from Loudmouth Tyrone. With all our current computing power we have, can we simulate an infinite 2D universe? If we can do that, would it be possible for a 4D universe to simulate an infinite 3D universe? Um, it kind of depends on what you mean by simulating a case like that, whether it's 2D or not. Um, anything that's infinite, you're not going to be able to simulate it in that consistent kind of way. You could do the equivalent of a library of Babel or infinite states thing where it just procedurally drew random, just random patterns. And in which case, so long as it keeps randomly refreshing those, that is hypothetically a 2D universe that you're generating. But you, there is no infinite aspect to this 3D universe. And if you want to make a 2D one, that doesn't change. Now, 4D universe cannot generate an infinite 3D universe except in that random library of Babel approach, which is. The Library of Babel, by the way, is a thought experiment that uh, derives its name from the Tower of Babel, um, but, uh, or the Infinite Monkeys project that we used to have with Shakespeare. Put an infinite number of monkeys in front of a typewriter, they're eventually going to uh, put out all the works of Shakespeare. But in the middle of doing that, they're going to put out an awful lot of crap, too. And uh, very literally, in the case of monkeys, I should think. And uh, the Library of Babel is the place where all that is stored. The Library of Babel, you know, if you limit it to only to one page, you know, walks, uh, as opposed to the things of whole books long, would be so big and massive, you wrote down, that it would collapse on its own way into becoming a super heavy, massive black hole. So, uh, you cannot do an infinite, uh, universe rendering, not even a 1D infinite re rendering. Uh, in any finite universe, it wouldn't matter if you were in a 10D one, you couldn't do a 1D one that was infinite unless you had infinite something up at that level to work with. So, no. Moon Truther says, what are your thoughts on the push towards a M Mars colony? Uh, it depends on which push you're talking about. There's been quite a few over the years. Um, I'm all for a trip to Mars. I'm all for setting up a base there in a permanent one. But when I think of a Martian base or a Martian colony, I think McMurdo, Antarctica. I'm not thinking, you know, Jamestown or Plymouth Rock. You know, it's not... Um, not a place I see a huge amount of migration to for people to start up new farms, new families, things like that. Um, I do not think Mars is the next destination for humanity. The moon is, the asteroid belt is. Um, these are not places that you're going to because they are nice places you can start farming on, though you can't actually farm on them as we've discussed in the colonizing series, for instance. Mars is not particularly valuable to us at the moment. Uh, it's a lot of raw material. It's got a lower gravity well than Earth does, and nobody lives on it right now, so we can freely disassemble it if we want to. Uh, but uh, it's not as easy to get your hands on as the asteroid or the moon, which is less gravity and is closer. Um, these things don't have life on them that we know of. They're, they're, maybe there's some lithophores and things like that that we've missed, right? The only thing of value on them is raw materials, and they're easier gotten out of asteroids or from the moon. Uh, and in many cases from here on Earth, which is where about half the rocky mass that's not in gas giants is located. So uh, in terms of a Martian base, I mean Martian colony, I don't think that's the first big off-Earth colony. I don't, I, you know, I see it happening one day, but I don't think of it as the, the benchmark for us. We have a super chat from Yvonne Fessler. You talk a lot about elliptical orbital rings. Wouldn't they need to be rigid, therefore circular? And thank you so much for your work. Well, thank you. Uh, no, they don't actually have to be circular. Fundamentally, what's going on inside uh, an, an orbital ring is, well, 
you, let's go with your most simple orbital ring. We're going to take off the outer sheath, that, that skin that goes around it, that's the nice stationary part. I'm going to take an awful lot of metal and put it into an elliptical orbit, okay? All is well. It can be in any kind of stable elliptical orbit. All right. Now I'm going to build a, a sheath around it that weighs a very, very tiny amount, and we'll assume all the stuff in the sheath is uh, repulsive to that material so it just doesn't bump into it. Now I have a fixed orbital ring, very thin one obviously, in which that matter is flowing around naturally. Nothing orbital ringy is really happening yet. We just have a ring of matter in an ellipse, a tight ring of matter. Now um, contained inside something very small that's not going to push against it. Now we'll go ahead and put all magnets around it and things like that that we use to accelerate, slow, or redirect that mass. It's harder to do ellipses than circles with a lot of this stuff, but it's certainly doable. You can make an elliptical particle accelerator. There's no real reason why we have done this yet because it's not of interest to us. A circular accelerator has a very specific purpose that is not helped out by being elliptical. It just adds complications. But yes, you can certainly do it. And um, it is trickier, but there's no particular downside or difficulty into it that's like uh, requires new science or anything like that. A super chat from Drew McTeague. Did you watch or enjoy The Expanse? Uh, hi, Drew. Uh, by the way, because I know that name, Drew was, uh, was with a co-writer of our episode, uh, The Spaceship Proportion Compendium, uh, and has been one of our moderators uh, on the, on the uh, Facebook, channel for, uh, Facebook page for a long time. Um, I watched the first three seasons of The Expanse. I know that there was theoretically supposed to be a fourth one with Amazon, but I've not kept up on that yet. If it's in production or done or falling already out. I'm um, getting increasingly behind my sci-fi shows. I love the series. Um, I had to stop reading the book series around book four because I had that experience Game of Thrones. I'd already read the book series before they started putting into production, and I'd much rather just see, especially with deviates from the book series, um, what the uh, what they come up with. So I'm not comparing around it. So if they do make more of the show, uh, I'll read the next book. Uh, if they don't, I'll finish up the series. Um, but uh, it's a very good... The book series is good and the TV series is good. They're not quite the same, obviously, but it's a real case where they're both just really good. And uh, there's a very big difference in the captain, though. I, in, in the book series, he seems like a much... You know, a little bit older, wiser, and calmer person than the TV show where he often seems a little bit crazy reckless. But uh, they both have their appeals to them, so... Dan M. says, what are the best ways a civilization can isolate itself? Mm-hmm. I mean, the best way would be to create a pocket universe and put yourself in it. Uh, that may be possible in known physics. We talked about wormholes that are uh, intra-universal, sorry, inter-universal, as for intra-universal, going from the same place to a different one in the same universe. Um, you know, we talk about things like black hole farming in the other sense, where you might make a black hole and it might produce another universe on the other side of it. How you would actually get to that universe, if such a thing is even possible, or uh, would be hard to say, uh, especially since you probably can't really go back out. It's uh, as we looked at in Luffy Aliens, if you can make another universe to go hide yourself in, uh, you have to guard that gateway to keep anyone from going back in it. And if there's no way to go back and forth, then... Um, you don't ever know if your colonists you sent through uh, went and lived in utopia or uh, off or barren dystopia or just got shredded by the black holes they went through. Uh, otherwise, trying to isolate yourself uh, inside the universe under known physics, I would say you'd probably want to eject your planet uh, outside the galaxy. That would be a slow process, obviously, with something like a Shikata thruster or some of the various thruster designs we looked at in Fleet of Stars. Eject yourself out of the galaxy and on a trajectory that's not going to take you towards any other galaxies and outside the supercluster, and like one of the cosmic voids that we, uh, I was going to say, we looked at recently in an episode, but we'll be looking at in an episode this upcoming month. 
you get yourself into some place that's so empty and a decent enough high enough speed that nobody really feels like going at you for your raw materials and they're not worried about you coming after them. So, And then the expansion universe should do the trick. In 100 billion years, you should be all alone with nobody around you for 100 billion light years around you as the universe expands. That would be my best guess. Ethan Keenan says, do you plan on exploring alien philosophy and alien cultural variations within the same species? You have to, I mean, you have to actually settle down and create one hypothetical alien species to do that. And we had to consider that with a series we didn't end up doing because um, there was just so much animation of a need for it. It was the idea was that we'd make up a few hypothetical alien species that had come up, you know, separate lines and kind of look at their progress based on a few minor variations from what, what we are to see how big those, those variations might have happened. But I don't think you could predict something that well even if you were to uh, have like a human civilization with the same psychology and just changed a few minor things like uh, changed the way the continents were around or uh, changed a few of the major staple crops those things have such huge impact on every aspect of our culture that it's just hard to predict what it would do to humanity let alone alien race but we might play around at some point um, I have a follow-up on that one from Ethan as well. It said, you said we have very few options for defending ourselves from an alien invasion. Would those options revolve around appeasing them or trying not to be noticed by them? Um, to appease them, you'd have to have something they wanted that, they, that you could give them with less effort than they could take it. And, and mind you, when we say effort, they might have more reasons why they don't really like to do things certain ways. So you might be able to appeal to them as, you know, by giving in to them and giving them what they want in a certain way, even though they could take it, where that was just more acceptable to their civilization. Uh, hiding, you're not going to hide from them. You cannot hide in space without new rules of physics. And the add-on is if you find those new rules, they probably already found them a million years before you did. So, you know, they probably know how to get around that if there's a way to get around it. Your other option, of course, is the assumption there is a set number of physical laws, set number of limits, and you can max out your technology in just another, you know, a few generations or a few centuries, which may be the case. There probably is a finite number of physical laws. In that case, you have a chance to actually oppose them because you have the same tech level and your resources are on hand. And that probably means great gooing your entire solar system built weapons platforms, but that's not something we can do right now. We have a super chat from Thought Criminal. Have you read any of Ted Kaczynski's writings like Industrial Society and Its Future or Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How? Why is that name familiar to me? Is that the Unabomber? I, I probably think of the wrong person. Uh, no, I, I don't think I've read... Uh, well, certainly, if it's the person I'm thinking of, I've certainly not read their work, but uh, I'm afraid I don't know that author, uh, unless it's who I'm thinking of, so... Johnny Wings, if you were approached by a major television network to make a series of SFIA, would you take up the offer? Um, it would depend a lot on the context. When you're dealing with something like television, they have so many slots and so much resource they can run. So if you go beneath a certain threshold, they have to cancel the show and move the resource around to other TV shows. And typically, you know, if you've done something like that, you can't come back and do YouTube over again. You know, I couldn't restart the channel or something like that, even assuming I was allowed to, because there'd probably be some kind of contract on the intellectual property. Um, so I would be interested if someone ever made that offer, but with a lot of caveats and a lot of reluctance. It'd be nice to spread the show out with better special effects into a bigger audience. But at the same time, uh, it's not something I really go around looking for the opportunity for. Um, whoops. Neko Girl says, how long do you think a hypothetical Mars colony would take to diverge culturally, maybe even linguistically, from cultures on Earth? One second. 
<laughs> um, I mean, it kind of depends on what you mean by divulgence. They'd still be getting all the same, you know, television, all the same entertainment that we're getting right now. <clears throat> and we don't know what the language they would be. It probably wouldn't be the same one. I don't mean that there would be a Martian language. I mean, if you have a reason to colonize Mars in a big way, in a way that's going to result in a colony of hundreds of thousands of people, then it's probably not a single colony. There's probably dozens of different colonies with different countries and different corporations having played a big role in their founding or having them as direct territory. In which case, you might eventually emerge with some kind of unified Martian culture, but we haven't on Earth so far, and there's no particular reason to think growing Mars would unify either. Um, in terms of divergence, though, culturally, before they even arrived, you know, before they even left, they've already pretty divergent from our civilization unless we picked a random sample of the population. Uh, but, you know, just the trip they are is going to have changed their attitude and outlook on life in a very major way. I don't mean the divergence you have from your clone over one second of life. It's a very big change. And it's probably a non-random sample of population going, so I'll, right away. Super chat from Milson. When do you think we might achieve <clears throat> the levels of energy efficiency implied in your civilizations at the end of time series? Oh, uh, if you mean the very last stage, the levels of energy efficiency necessary to really maximize um, the land out limits where you're, you're dealing with temperatures in the, the nano Kelvin range. I don't think you could ever really achieve that level of uh, efficiency off of collecting Hawking radiation off of solar mass black holes. Um, now, you could, what you could do, and it's always possible to find a way to do it. What you could do, though, is to have a lot of solar mass black holes that you carefully fed matter into, so they all kind of chained out, so they all shrinking in mass to a more usable level, say, uh, a planet mass or, well, more like an asteroid mass at the same time. And you're just going from one to the other, the other, the other as they burned out. So I have a slightly different mass on them all. And you could probably set that up and before that have federal black holes have gotten power that way, which is much easier. So you did have one constant power supply that entire time. But I do not think you could ever find a way to tap Hawking radiation of solar mass, let alone galactic mass black holes, in a useful way. You'd have to be feeding the matter or waiting until they evaporate on their own and got to a more brilliant level. A question from Arsene Munn. <clears throat> do, you think it's a, do you think it's possible to form clouds in O'Neill Cylinder? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can form clouds. Um, here in Akron, I believe we have a big warehouse depot for our blimp. Uh, the Goodyear blimp. Uh, Akron's about 50, 60 miles south of us. Yeah. And when the blimp's in there, it's uh, so big that they actually have rain inside the plant, if memory serves. Um, you can get cloud formation in a bell draw if you don't arrive with your atmosphere mixes. Yes, you can get cloud formation on your or at least the bigger ones. If something smaller like Kaplana 1, like Brian Vosti's one, or the Gateway one, you wouldn't expect to get any real weather there, but you still get condensation. Jim Morrison asks, assuming your consciousness could be cloned, would you ever allow a copy to exist? Um, you mean, would I actually turn a mind-uploaded copy on? If I had my mind uploaded, I would be treating it as kind of a fallback that was, you know, updated to what my current brain state was that could take over my responsibilities if I died. I don't view it, let me mind uploading itself as a way of life extension, but more of a way of like life insurance. If I die, my, my duplicate can take over all my roles and responsibilities and duties for me. Um, but if for some reason it got turned on, um, then I would, you know, by pile thought on the matter, we would simply take a name that had a different middle name than mine, something starting with a B instead of an A, and it would be equally me in my eyes, and in its eyes too, uh, in which case we'd divulge. We'd no longer be the same person, but it would have all the same friends, family, relationships that I had. 
Along those same lines, you have a fan that is asking whether or not you, they could use a portion of your video in a presentation that they are putting together. If you're not using it for commercial purposes or planning to blast all over the internet to thousands of people, the videos are meant to be watched. You know, if you want to show the, these to your class or something like that or doing a presentation, go right ahead. And I think this might be the last question I've got up here at the moment uh, for, from Corey Williams. Mm -hmm. They say, hey, Isaac, wondering if you feel that it's a little misleading to assume a Dyson Swarm is an inevitable advance in technology. Wouldn't fusion or some other energy source make a Dyson Swarm obsolete? Nope. Uh, well, uh, before we get into that, we probably have time for about four or five more questions. We're a little bit over. So um, if you guys still want to put more questions, then go ahead. The first thing is a Dyson Swarm is not necessarily there to collect energy. Uh, the second thing is you have to actually make fusion work. Uh, and, and then, as I've pointed out to folks, we cannot replicate the conditions inside a star. Not because we cannot replicate the conditions inside a star. That's easy. It's because replicating the conditions inside a star of fusion are not enough. Um, you know, you take a big one kilogram or a thousand kilogram sack of, of fusion metal coating going on in the sun and just bottle up safely, you'll barely be able to light a light bulb up with it. It's that slow. Remember, this, the fusion is going slow, slow. It's going to take 10 billion years to go through 10% of its fusion mass. Um, if we make something that can do that that easy to the point where it's cheaper than building really cheap solar panels and meals in space, which remember is probably a lot easier to do, if there's a cost point on that, that's better, right? And outside like the frost line, far away from the sun, it probably will be better. You have more fusion dependent uh, economies probably further out from the sun. But unless you can make solar panels that are, unless you can make fusion or black hole power sources that are cheaper than solar panels, you're gonna go with those. But that's not the end of it. Cause when we say Dyson Swarm, it's not about whether or not they are using it for sunlight. That's just the easy, simplest version. But it's whether or not they want to use that star's mass. And they're using that right now as a very ambient, passive energy generator. All that mass is what matters. At that point in time, they might star lift it, take it apart, feed it down a black hole, transmute other materials. They're using that up. And you say, well, they can spread out. Why would they want to? The size of a Dyson Swarm is what it is because that's where you can collect enough light to be Earth-like. Well, that's also, if you get closer, you get too hot. Right? It's too hot, you have to spread out. Get further away, you can get closer together. And you want to be close together. Dyson swarms are not dense. You want to be as close together as you can for fast transmission of communications and people. Now, people might choose to be more spread out, but there's always that advantage to being packed together. And it's not the amount of energy being produced by the culture or what's available to them that controls it. It is the amount they're releasing as waste heat. And that has nothing to do with whether it's a sun, a black hole, or any other power source. We have a super chat from Thought Criminal. What do you think of Antali Carlin's Oh, my goodness. Catachan hypothesis as an explanation for the Fermi paradox. I Did I pronounce that incorrectly? I, I probably, I don't know. I actually do not know that one. If you want to leave that below in the comments for me, I will look that up and see if I'm familiar with it, but the name's not ringing a bell. Moontruther asks, do you think a full consciousness transfer rather than duplicates from human body to digital mind is possible? Sure. It just depends on how you define the word full body or mind transfer. Uh, if we're going to go ahead and say that if I burn your brain out while copy into another machine, that new copy is a transfer, then you're good. I transfer files on a thumb drive from one computer to another. I don't really think of the files at the other end as being somehow different files than the ones I put off originally that are deleted. But I chose to delete them, you know, as opposed to leaving a copy everywhere. And that same process probably applies. But at the same time, 
when a neuron in my head dies, or when a new neuron gets a new memory, there's a change of state to the brain. So there has to be a definition of mind transfer that potentially could include copying on something else. But what that is, it is going to be subjective. I don't think there's going to be any way you can just say this is definitely a mind transfer rather than a copy. We have a super chat from Living God. The first <clears throat> ever exoplanet was found around a pulsar. Why don't we consider that an alien construct? The amount of electrons captured from the pulsar would power a Kardashev scale 2 civilization. Um, well, the amount of energy off of a remnant star is usually lower than it is from a normal star, so I guess you could call it K2 still, but um, the question is why we found the exoplanet there, uh, and then the question is what's what's making it more visible. Um, we have no particular reason that would be an alien construct. I, I think the notion there is shouldn't the supernova have blown the planet up that was around it? You have a, you know, you have a big star called a 10 solar mass star that's going to go supernova and leave a, a neutron star behind. And you're thinking, well, when the supernova goes off, it had to have destroyed all those planets. No. Uh, Earth would probably be destroyed if something of that mass went off and blew us up. But a lot of other planets would not be destroyed. Jupiter, for instance, would certainly be hit pretty bad by a supernova, but it would be left over. You know, most of its mass be left over. Supernovas are very powerful, but don't make the mistake of assuming that they're all that huge. Uh, they go off, and even once you're a few AU out, it's at the point where, uh, you know, a civilization living in the center of a 10-kilometer-wide asteroid might actually survive the shockwave. You're out in a place like Pluto. If you're buried down a mile on the ground, you're probably going to survive. Things like Pluto would survive. Things like, uh, you know, Jupiter would survive. So planets around neutron stars or white dwarfs does not indicate they formed afterwards, but they probably could. A lot of mass left over. There's nothing stopping planet formation afterwards, but there's also nothing stopping planets surviving when they go supernova. I think that we have another question coming in, but it's kind of in the chat waves. Is there anything that you'd like to add while we're waiting for it? Uh... I like Sundays. Um, <laughs> you know, we have the upcoming schedule uh, available to everybody, and uh, you should have seen it going up as we were going along. But uh, for those who are curious, I usually do leave a link to the entire episode guide. Folks will ask what's coming up, and uh, we are. I'll have to make a point of adding that in the comment section again so we can see that. We did a poll over on Facebook. In fact, it's still running because I haven't officially closed out yet on uh, what new topics we'd be doing for, I think, episodes 254 and 255. Um, so if you want to get some input on there, also going to run another poll on YouTube probably next week or two for picking out an episode. Okay, we got another question? Yes, I believe this might be the last question. It's a super chat from Andrew Soto. What do you think would constitute as evidence that we are living in a simulation? Um, somebody showing you a simulation off and saying, you're in a simulation. Um, if you're in a simulation, you have no way of proving it unless the people doing the programming messed up or unless they choose to actively let you know. And you know, in this kind of context, it's no different than a theological discussion of how would you know if you're in, in a dream of, or of a creator entity or things along those lines. You know what they permit you to know. And it's worse than the case like a brain and jaw, which we'll get in two, year, two weeks from now, because they can pause a thing. If you, oops, figure it out, they can pause it and delete that memory from your head. Oh, and they can go back a day and start the thing over again, just like a save program. How would a book know that it was, a, you know, the characters inside a book know that they were book characters? They wouldn't. You know, that's, that's not how that works out. So you have no way of knowing your simulation unless the people doing the simulation mess up are really lazy 
or they intentionally let you know. And those first two options are kind of counterindicated by the ability to do a simulation as complex as us in the first place. So, all right, I guess we're going to go ahead and close out there. Thank you everybody so much for uh, for your questions today and for joining us today and for the super chats. We appreciate that very great deal. And we will see you on Thursday. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.